So if you have your Bibles with you today, and I hope you do, find your way to Luke chapter 9. And I want to share with you a message I've titled, The Happiest Answer to the Heaviest Question. And the question is there. It's listed on the title slide that you see. But who do you say that I am? This question that Jesus ultimately asks to his disciples. This question which ultimately inspires a great confession by one of those disciples. That's the question we're going to be contemplating today. But before we get into that, I want to just talk about a couple of college football players that I heard about who were in danger of academic probation. I mean, they were not recruited because of their academic abilities. Let's just say that. A couple of, you know, brawnish sort of guys who were really good at football, but not too good at the academic side of things. And so they were in danger of, in, of academic ineligibility, and, and they were taking the final exam of a course that if they failed this exam, they would ultimately not be allowed to play in the big game, which was happening that next week. So here these two guys are at the back of the classroom, back of the auditorium, where they would normally sit, and Bubba and Tiny are taking their exam. Well, it turns out that the coach had put in a good word with the teacher and said, you know, Bub and Tyner are really having a hard time in this class. And if they don't pass this, then they're really going to be hurting our school and our athletic program. Could you, could you just do something to try and help them with this exam? The professor said, well, I'll see what I can do. And so Bubba and Tiny are there taking their exam, and they get to the final question of the exam, which is worth 70 points of the exam. And the question is... Fill in the blank, old McDonald had a blank. All right? Well, Bubba's sitting in the back, and he's, he's really just perplexed. He just doesn't know how to answer this thing, so he says, psst, psst, Tiny. And Tiny, you know, he looks around, he notices that the teacher's not. What is it, Bubba? He says, what's the answer to that last question? He says, Bubba, come on, man, I thought you had at least that much knowledge to you. Everybody knows that old McDonald had a farm. So Bubba takes a moment and says, oh yeah, that's right, I, I remember, I remember. And he pauses, but he finds himself frozen yet again. And so he taps Tiny on the shoulder, hey Tiny, Tiny, how do you spell farm? And Tiny says, Bubba, this beats all I've ever seen. Everybody knows that farm is spelled E-I-E-I-O. Well, some questions we can easily say are more important than others. It might be a question that chooses whether or not you're going to be able to pass an exam or whether or not you're going to be able to pursue something that is your passion. But there is a heavier question that Luke has been putting before us over and over again as we get to Luke chapter 9. And this is what I would describe as the heaviest of questions. It's a question which is weighing heavily on everyone's minds to this point in the Gospel of Luke. When Jesus forgave the paralytic sins back in Luke chapter 5, for example, the Pharisees grumbled and they said, Who is this man who speaks such blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? That's what we read in Luke 5, 21. Later, when John the Baptist was confused by his circumstances while he was locked away in prison, he sent messengers to Jesus to ask, 
Are you the one who is coming? Or do we look for someone else? That's in chapter 7, verse 19. Then over in chapter 7, verse 49, when Jesus was having dinner with a Pharisee, and he forgave the sins of this woman who anointed his feet, the other guests grumbled at that time, Who is this man who even forgives sins? Then after Jesus calmed the storm with his disciples in tow, in chapter 8, we read in verse 25, that the disciples fearfully ask, Who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water? And they obey him. Then in Luke chapter 9, verse 9, as Herod talks about all the things that Jesus and his disciples are doing, he asks, Who is this man about whom I hear such things this is a question that will weigh on the minds of people in jerusalem as jesus makes his descent into that city as he goes there to make himself a sacrifice for all the world we read in matthew 21 verses 10 and 11 when jesus had entered jerusalem all the city was stirred saying who is this and the crowds were saying this is the prophet jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. But Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, keeps drawing our attention back to this same question. Who is this? And it's a heavy question. It's a question that's weighing on everyone's minds in Luke's day. It's a question that weighs on the minds of so many individuals in our day. It's a question that Luke wants you to deal with. And so he puts it in front of you time and time again so that you feel like you've got to deal with this question. Because this, my friends, is a question that we need to deal with. And Luke shows that those who've been with Jesus and who have heard his teaching, who have shared life with him, who have seen his miracles in person, who have experienced his character in person. He shows how those individuals answer this question. And he does that as an instruction for each and every one of us that we too might know how it is we should answer this heaviest of questions. And in particular, it's Peter who speaks up to answer this important question when Jesus asks it. And we know that Peter's answer is a good one. Because when we read about this same account over in Matthew's gospel, in Matthew chapter 16, we read that Jesus says, after Peter has made his proclamation, he says, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. That Bar-Jonah just means son of John. Blessed are you, Simon, son of John. And then that word that's rendered blessed there could also be rendered happy. So Peter is given the answer that is the happiest of all answers to this heaviest of all questions. And that's why I've titled today's message, The Happiest Answer to the Heaviest Question. And Peter's answer in this passage becomes a turning point in Luke's gospel. Because once Luke has gotten out the revelation that his disciples have come to recognize that Jesus is the Christ... Jesus' ambition turns away. We've, we've focused for so long on this northern area of Galilee. But now Jesus will turn and set his face on going to Jerusalem, that holy city, that city where ultimately he will pay the ransom for the world. So let's turn our attention now to Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 18. 
But I'm going to do a little bit of something out of the ordinary today as well. We're also going to read an account from Matthew chapter 16. So we'll start in Luke 9. And I'm going to ask you all to stand if you're able as we honor the reading of God's word. But we're going to flip over to Matthew chapter 16 once we're done reading here. Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 18. Hear the word of the Lord. And it happened that while he, that is Jesus, was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he questioned them, saying, Who do the people say that I am? They answered and said, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, but others that one of the prophets of old has risen again. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said, The Christ of God. But he warned them and instructed them not to tell this to anyone, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Now flip your way over to Matthew chapter 16. And we'll be picking up in verse 13. Matthew 16, starting in verse 13. And here we see Matthew's account of of the very same thing. I just read this because there's some extra insights that Matthew gives that I think will be helpful for us as we examine this passage. Starting verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And here's something unique that Matthew's gospel contains, starting in verse 17. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall shall happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, for you are a stumbling block to me. For you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Here ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. So just to give a little context, last week we looked at the feeding of the 5,000. This great miraculous event that Jesus carried out as we were in this town of Bethsaida, really on the outskirts of town, the people had grown hungry and the disciples said, send these people away so that they may find something to eat. And Jesus ultimately shows his disciples, you're my ministry plan to meet the needs of these people. So he says, you give them something to eat. And this miraculous display of Christ's power as he creates out of nothing this food which sustains this awesome 
crowd of what was probably, we talked about last week, somewhere in the range of twenty to 25,000 people altogether. Well, Luke hits fast forward after this event. Because if we will look at, at the Gospels of Mark and Matthew, we're going to find that in both of those Gospels, after Jesus fed the 5,000, he performed this other great miracle that Luke does not include in his Gospel. Why? Well, maybe Luke's scroll was just running out of space. Luke's already the longest of the Gospel accounts. Whatever the case may be, he's working under the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I believe ultimately the fact that he jumped straight to this confession of Peter drives forward the narrative of what Luke wants us to see. But both Matthew and Mark reveal that after Jesus carried out that miracle, he came walking to his disciples on the water. That's an account that Luke does not include. Then there are other events, including this trip to the wicked cities of Tyre and Sidon, and the healing of many individuals, and even Uh, Yet another miraculous feeding, this time not of 5,000, but of 4,000 that happens just off the coast of the Sea of Galilee. All of these things take place between the time of the passage that we looked at last week and the time of the passage that we're looking at here today. And you can read about all that if you want to in Matthew chapters 14 through verse 22 through chapter 16 verse 12. So if you want to get up to speed on what Jesus has been doing, and what, what Luke has kind of fast-forwarded beyond, that's your opportunity to do that. But Luke ultimately hones us in on this question, and he takes us fast-forward into this question. Who is this? Or is it most specifically worded here to the disciples from Jesus' lips here in this account? Who do you say that I am? And that's a question that God, through Luke, wants the readers of this gospel to wrestle with. It's a question that God wants you to be confronted with and to have to answer. And these accounts of Jesus confronting his disciples with this question have led me to to formulate four related questions that I believe all of us need to be prepared to answer as we seek to answer this greater question of who do you say Jesus is? The overarching question that, that each of you have, have gathered here today ought to be striving to answer is the same question that Jesus asked his disciples. Who do you, who do you say that Jesus is? But as you contemplate your answer to that question, let me give you four considerations on how you should answer based on what this passage reveals for us. Here's the first question to consider. Have you formed a personal conviction? Have you formed a personal conviction? Jesus wants all men everywhere to form a personal conviction regarding the issue of his identity. In fact, he is deeply desiring that individuals would come to know him more fully. So deep is Jesus' yearning that Jesus is praying to his heavenly Father in prayer in verse 18. Luke reveals that all of this happened, all of this confession happened while Jesus was praying alone and the disciples were with him. In the presence of his disciples, as Jesus is praying independently of them, Jesus raises this heaviest of all questions. And Jesus often did this sort of thing in his earthly ministry. He was often found in prayer before he would come to these moments when he would reveal his identity or reveal his plans 
for his disciples. For example, in Luke chapter 3, Jesus was baptized, and we read in verse 21, while he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in a bodily form like a dove, and a voice came out of heaven. You are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. And then in Luke chapter 6, Jesus went off to the mountain to pray. He spent the whole night in prayer to God. And then when day came, we read in verse 13, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them. A little bit later in Luke chapter 9, we'll find that it was as Jesus went up on a mountain to pray with three of his closest disciples that he was transfigured before them. And God's identification of his son was made clear to them. And I really don't have time to break down John chapter 17, but in that high priestly prayer of Jesus, we catch a glimpse of the substance of Jesus' prayers when it comes to his disciples. He wants us to know him. He wants to give us eternal life. He wants us to be kept apart from the evil one. He wants us to be set apart in the truth. He wants us to be with him and to see his glory and to know the love of God. And he prayed that all of these things would be the outcome of his forthcoming suffering. As that prayer was just before he went to Gethsemane. And so I mention all that just to say this. Jesus wants you to know him. Jesus, when he prays, prays that individuals would come to know him. He prays and God the Father reveals him. And you should know that Jesus is not hiding himself from you. He wants you to know him. And Jesus quizzes his disciples in this passage because he wants them to know him as well. And his initial question for them sets up a contrast. Because Jesus begins by asking, who do the people say that I am? Who do the crowds say that I am? That word translated people could also be translated crowds or multitudes there in verse 18 of Luke 9. Jesus knows that this question is heavy on the minds of so many people who are following him around. So many people who are seeing him work these great miracles. So many people who are hearing his great teaching. They're asking the same question. Who is this? And so Jesus asks his disciples, first of all, to identify what the people are saying. And they identify some potentials from the eyes of the people, the eyes of the crowds as we begin here. That's what we find the disciples saying here in these verses and what they ultimately list out is actually a repeat of what we've seen earlier in Luke chapter 9 as in verses 7 and 8 we read that as Herod was paranoid about hearing the good things that Jesus was doing he started to ask the same question who is this and listen to the options that were going around in Herod's area Herod's neck of the woods Now Herod the Tetrarch heard of all that was happening and he was greatly perplexed because it was said by some that John had risen from the dead, that is John the Baptist, and by some that Elijah had appeared and by others that one of the prophets had risen again. Three options, John the Baptist risen from the dead, the Old Testament prophet Elijah, or one of the prophets of old. Those are the the options, options that were offered to Herod there in Luke chapter 9, verses 7 and 8. Then when Jesus asked his disciples here in chapter 9, verse 18, 
They respond in verse 19 by offering the very same options because that's where we read. They answered and said, John the Baptist and others say Elijah, but others that one of the prophets of old has risen again. So there's a pretty strong testimony here that much of the known world at this time in Jesus's ministry had limited him to three potential options. Option A, he could be John the Baptist. He could be this cousin of Jesus who had come as the forerunner in some reincarnated form. He could be the one who is preparing the way for the Lord. John came as the forerunner of the Messiah. He came to get the people in order before the Savior came and he called individuals to get in order by calling them to repent. And some people are convinced that this is John just in another form. They don't see Jesus as the Savior. They only see Jesus as the Messiah's forerunner. And there are parallels to that in our modern day. There are many religions that would see Jesus as only a link in the chain of what God or the gods are doing. There are some religions that see Jesus just as a prophet of God who prepares the way for a greater prophet who would come later. And that's option one for the crowd in Jesus' day. Option A. Option B would be that Jesus could be Elijah. Now, Elijah was another prophet of God who appeared in the Old Testament, and Elijah performed some pretty amazing miracles. For example, Elijah was the one who called down fire from heaven. Elijah was one who ultimately raised the dead son of a widow. And when he went to this widow for help in his time of need, he sustained an empty flour jar and oil can such that those two made flour for this woman and her son and the prophet for weeks even though things were empty that's pretty similar i mean jesus has already done some of these things right he's raised the dead of a widow he he has likewise produced bread that was in an abundant supply in this feeding of the five thousand so we can kind of understand maybe how some individuals are getting him crossed up with elijah but that's not the full picture of who he is And there's this modern day parallel here that some people just see Jesus as a miracle worker. Some individuals just believe his miracles, but they will not buy his exclusive teaching that he is the only way, the only truth, the only life, that no one comes to the Father except by him. That's another prominent option in our day. Then there's option C, which relegated Jesus to any of the other prophets of old. Now, a prophet was simply someone who declared to men what he had received from God. Often, that revelation that a prophet would share included things that had to deal with the future, but not always. So these are teachers of divine revelation. And our modern-day parallel here would be individuals who consider Jesus to be a good moral teacher. I mean, they hear the things of Jesus, they hear Jesus telling you to love your enemies, and they say, that's a good thing. And so so they say, I'm willing to do that. I'm willing to make changes to my moral actions, my moral attitude. I'm willing to change my behavior, but I am not willing to entrust myself to the Savior. You see the difference there? That would be the modern parallel of individuals who would see Jesus just as another prophet. And I just want to say, just as in Jesus' day, in our day, if you survey the crowds you'll find many different opinions about who Jesus is. Everybody has an opinion. 
But it doesn't matter what everybody thinks about Jesus. What matters is who he really is. And we know who he really is by how he has injected himself into time and has revealed himself to us. You can't know who Jesus is apart from divine revelation about who he is. You can't come to these truths through mere flesh and blood. Only God can reveal what the crowds could only otherwise speculate. And how did Peter come to this conclusion? Well, Peter didn't take a poll, right? He, he didn't go out and survey the crowds and say, do you think Jesus is the Christ? Okay, well, that's a positive in the positive checkbox. And, oh, we came out with more positives, so Jesus must be the Christ. No, that's not the way that he worked. He didn't go out and say, what's the popular opinion on Jesus? Oh, I'll take that. Now, that's where the political party Jesus goes, by the way. I don't care whether you're Republican or Democrat, you'll find individuals who are peddling Jesus as being an advocate for whatever their ambition may be, regardless of how close it is to what divine revelation might be. But that's very much a public opinion sort of Jesus. Let's go out and find what the crowds are going to like, and we'll support that Savior. And yet, you need to seek how God has revealed Jesus. So stop looking around and studying world religions. Stop bringing your carnal mind to the Bible and reading in your own opinions and your own desires. Leave your pride behind and ask God to reveal to you who the real Jesus Christ is. And I assure you, my friends, that he will. If you want to know who Jesus Christ really is, you can know, but you won't learn by taking a poll. You'll only know by humbling yourself and opening your heart to the revelation of God. And we can summarize that saying that you need a personal conviction. That's why when the disciples are done surveying the crowd, Jesus asks them a more important question than what do the people say about me. He says, but who do you say that I am? And so I ask you once again, have you formed a personal conviction? But secondly... Have you made a public confession? Have you made a public confession? When Jesus asks the disciples who they say he is, Peter steps up and he boldly proclaims that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That, my friends, is a public confession. And Peter was going out on a limb to be the first one among his peers who would proclaim that very truth. The world around Peter does not see Jesus this way, and yet Peter is willing to put himself out there and to say publicly, this is who I believe he is. But every one of us must be willing to make this public profession of Christ. Are you ashamed of Christ? Then you should be concerned about your eternal destiny. Why would I say that? Well, Romans chapter 18, verses 9 and 10 have this to say. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. That's what the Word of God says. There is a biblical call to confess Jesus In fact, Jesus shows how important it is to confess him with these words of his own in Matthew 18, 
or Matthew chapter 10, verses 32 and 33. Jesus says, Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. You see, Simon Peter made a public confession. He could have said to himself, well, you know, I know in my heart who Jesus is. But there are too many people who are here who are listening. I don't want to be identified with him publicly. So I'm not going to say this out loud. I'm not going to make my confession public. And I just got to say, I suspect that there are many who gather here on the average Sunday, week after week, who perhaps believe that Jesus is the Christ, believe that he is the son of the living God, but who are afraid and ashamed to confess him before others. And yet, that's what God calls for us to do. That's why I extend the invitation at the end of most services that we have here in this church. Because I want everyone to have an opportunity to be faithful to this call of the Lord. Listen, there's nothing magical about the aisleways in this church. There's nothing magical about the steps that we gather up at up here. There's nothing magical about grabbing a pastor's hand and, and, and just speaking words in front of others. It's just a matter of being obedient to the Lord and showing faith in Him. It's a way of saying, I am not ashamed of Jesus. Likewise, what we're talking about doing next Sunday with baptism. There's nothing, we, we talk about this every time we fill up the baptistry. There's nothing magical about those waters. We're not washing away sin such that we need to tell the, the water treatment plant down the road, watch out, they're coming, right? There's, there's none of that that we need to do. What we're doing is getting a very public confession of what Jesus has done in our hearts and in our lives. It's a public display of real faith a public confession and peter confessed you are the christ the son of the living god now there's some details on those words that we should unpack christ is one of those words that we just tend to take for granted i mean we use it in church language a lot and sometimes we really don't even understand what we're saying when we talk about christ but christ is one of those words that ought to ought to take a little bit of 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 time to unpack it's an English word that's really a transliteration of a Greek word that simply means anointed one. All right? Anointed one. The nation of Israel anointed kings and they anointed prophets and they anointed priests. Three categories of individuals they would anoint. And, and when I say anoint, they would take anointing oil and they would pour it on those individuals, usually on their head, in their hair, okay? Okay? This was a way of signifying God's choice of those kings and those prophets and those priests. And so let me give you some examples of that. In, in 1 Samuel 10, the prophet Samuel anoints Saul as the first king over Israel. And then he anoints in, verse, in chapter 16 of 1 Samuel, David to be the second of those kings. This was, in effect, the coronation ceremony of these kings. This was the time when God confirmed this is my man for this job of being king. In 1 Kings 19, the Lord commands Elijah, the prophet, not only to anoint a king, but also to anoint the prophet Elisha 
to be the prophet in his place in verse 16. So we've got an anointing of kings, we've got an anointing of a prophet in Exodus 29. God gives instructions for how Aaron and his sons are to be consecrated as the very first priests over Israel. And here's what God commands them in verse 7. Then you shall take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him. Now the Hebrew word for to anoint is the word meshach, all right? I used to love taking Hebrew because Amy would sit around and make fun of me for the little <laughs> noises I got to make. But it's a, it's, a very, it's a very snotty sort of language, all right? Let's just say it that way. But, um, but that word is the word that we transliterate into our English word Messiah. So we're talking about Messiah, meaning in the Hebrew, to anoint or the anointed one. Just the same as Christ in the Greek means the anointed one. These are really just two ways of saying the same thing, depending on which language you came from with that translation. All right, so Christ and Messiah are the same thing. They simply mean the anointed one. But you should also know that not every prophet and priest and king over Israel was anointed. God didn't command that practice in every circumstance. Actually, most commonly when there was a new line or a new dynasty that was being established, that's what God would do. He would anoint one. And the Old Testament promised another anointed one who would be God's choice anointed one who was to come. We have passages like Psalm 2 and Daniel chapter 9 that are alluding to this coming rescuer who would be anointed by God as a king in David's line. And he would be a prophet like Moses. And he would be a priest before the Most High God. And he would bring rescue for God's people and judgment upon God's enemies. God's revelation pointed to this coming prophet and priest and king who would be the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ. And we've already seen an anointing as we've been in our study through Luke's gospel. Do you remember that? It's not the same sort of anointing we might expect to see with God's chosen Savior, but it was still an anointing. Back in Luke chapter 7, we read the following, starting verse 37. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with perfume. And Jesus spoke to Simon the Pharisee who was hosting him as this woman came in verse 46. And he said to this high religious leader, you did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume and friends listen to me on this a new anointed one has come but it's clear from luke's gospel that it is not the proud and the self-righteous of the earth who will anoint him as their king they are not the ones who will develop a personal conviction that they need him as their savior it is the lowly it is the sinners it is those who will weep over their need it is those who are longing for a cure for these the messiah has come 
And he is able to meet their needs because he is the very son of God. He is God in the flesh, reconciling the world to himself. Do you know who he is? He has come for you. Though you have wronged him, still he welcomes you. Though you are his enemy, still he has died for you. Though you are lost, still he calls you to come. Come to him, wandering sinner, and find life. And have you made a public confession? That's the second consideration. As you consider who do you say Jesus is, here's the third. Have you experienced a powerful conversion? When Peter made this confession that Jesus was the Christ, Jesus responded and said, Blessed are you, Simon, son of John, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. Jesus says, you've given the answer that is blessed and revealed by God. You've given the happiest answer to the heaviest question. And Jesus makes it clear that it is through this confession and the faith that produces this confession that God saves those who come to Christ. He saves by faith. Because Jesus not only calls Peter blessed, He says, upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. The way Peter answers this question shows that God has worked a mighty work in his life. He has experienced experienced a powerful conversion. He has become a founding member of the true church of Jesus Christ. It's not a work that he could do on his own. It's not a work that was revealed to him by flesh and blood. It was a work that God had to initiate if it was going to be revealed. And this is what he has done for all of us by sending his Messiah to ransom our souls. It is a work that is conducted by grace through faith. And know this, my friends, salvation always works this way, by grace through faith. God always saves by grace through faith. It is not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he ordained before the foundation of the world. And friends, hear me. I want to ask you, have you experienced a powerful conversion? And listen, I'm not saying that the circumstances of your conversion, the circumstances of your coming to faith, need to be characterized by some sort of supernatural phenomena that no one else can explain. That's not the sort of power that I'm talking about. The powerful conversion that I'm speaking of here is the conversion that every poor sinner experiences when he has come to find that he is powerless to deal with his own issue of sin. And my friends, you should know that every time a broken, weary, powerless sinner is saved by God's grace there is great power on display it is a power that flesh and blood cannot compete with but hear me on this and hear me well I don't care if you were raised in a Christian home and you grew up in a Christian church and you just naturally subtly came to Christ there was still great power on display in that event Because even for you, my friends, Jesus set you free from sin. 
Even for you, Jesus paved the way to everlasting life. Even for you, he has split the curtain in two and he has resurrected victorious over the grave. And that same power is available for whosoever will come to Christ and receive him as Lord. Whosoever will entrust his or her life to Jesus will find that he is over and beyond sufficient in his power to deal with our greatest disease. There is power in Jesus to save to the uttermost. And oh my friend, do not delay receiving this gift. Trust him today. Find this power find his victory find his hope find his peace have you experienced powerful conversion that's the third consideration as you consider who do you say that jesus is here's the final one have you found a passionate commander jesus is warning in luke chapter 9 verse 21 may seem odd to us at first Why would Jesus warn his disciples and instruct them not to tell anyone that he was the Christ? Well, his words to them in verse 22 reveal why. That's where he says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes. Basically, all the categories of religious leaders in Jesus' day are going to reject him. And he must be killed and raised up on the third day. Jesus is talking about his passion. He's talking about ultimately he will go to the cross of Calvary to be executed as a substitute, the just for the unjust, so that those who are lost and wandering in sin may find life in him. Jesus is saying he's still got work to do. And the people were looking for a Messiah who would deal with temporary problems. They were looking for a Christ who would defeat the Roman government. And bring peace and independence. But Jesus had so much more to offer. If they had known that he was the Christ in this moment. What would they have done? They would have taken him to the king's palace. They would have ushered him in to be a king in the palace at this time. But Jesus wasn't headed for a palace. He was headed for a cross. And because he had greater work to do. And his disciples needed to understand that work. Jesus tells them, don't tell anyone else this now. They needed to understand that Jesus wasn't just about political power and an esteemed status. He was about serving those who had a greater need. He came to rescue. He came to save. And so when Peter says he will not allow Jesus to be persecuted and executed, Jesus tells him, get behind me Satan, you are a stumbling block to me. For you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but on man's. You see, God's interests had more in store than just the disciples and the crowds could even imagine. God's interests saw to it that the Messiah would deal with a greater problem than just political rule. And so Jesus called for Peter to get in line, to stop making personal preference and safety and prosperity, the ultimate objective of his life. And my friends, we've got the same call for each and every one of us. We are focusing too much on our own prosperity, on our own safety, on our own 
protection. When God calls us to be the ones who would bring this news of a ransom for the world to bear upon each and every individual who lives in it. All men should have the opportunity to know this Savior. All men should have the opportunity to be set free by Him. And so as we read in Matthew 16, verse 21, from that time, Jesus began to show His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem. And my friends, we have life today because Christ has carried out His passion. And we have purpose today because that same Christ commands us to join in on the mission which He began of drawing in all men to Himself. And so I ask you once more, have you formed a personal conviction? Have you made a public confession? Have you experienced a powerful conversion? And have you found a passionate commander? Answering yes to these questions will help you find the happiest answer to the heaviest question. And I don't know where you are, my friends, in your walk with the Lord right now, but I just want to tell you that the anointed one has come. He has come as prophet, priest, and king. As a prophet, he has revealed to us ultimately what God's greatest of all desires is, that we would be reconciled to himself. And he has shown us the way to be reconciled. As a priest, he has ultimately stood in the gap between God and man by taking on human flesh, God in the flesh, reconciling the world to himself as our intermediary. And he knows our sufferings. He knows our sorrows. He knows what it's like to be in your shoes. And he intercedes for you. And yet as a king, as a king, he has come to reveal that he is to be the commander of all that we are for all of eternity. And yet he is a good king, a king who will lead us in righteous paths, a king who will lead us into eternal peace. So, who do you say Jesus is? Is he the one for whom you have a personal conviction? The one through whom you have experienced a powerful conversion, the one for whom you have given this public confession and the one who now gives you purpose in the life that you live. He offers all these things to you through the richness of His grace. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank You for the good news that Jesus has come as the Christ he is the anointed one. He is the one that you have designed history to point us toward. And Father, I pray that as we look at the example of these disciples, as we look at how you interceded in their lives and you showed your grace and compassion and your miraculous power in the flesh to them, that as we look at what they learned, we would not take these lessons for granted. Oh, Lord, help us each and every one to truly understand what you have revealed Christ to be. 